Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Decreation and Recreation, Part 2, recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Okay, let's take a look at one more place here about, again, the specific creation language. We're going to Isaiah chapter 43 right now. In verse 15, it begins, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So it's clear again that the creation of Israel is center stage here, or the recreation of Israel. He begins by talking about how I rescued you in the sea, allowed you to cross through the sea. Then he says, do not remember the former things, the, the, the bad experiences of destruction and exile. Don't remember those things or consider the things of old, because I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? A new thing. So here is where we can really speak of a new creation. Right? At the cosmic, at the political, and at the liturgical level. It all goes together. One more place here. The very end of uh, this, this story in Isaiah 55. I already mentioned that thing about the role, the covenant with David has been democratized to the people of Israel, to the, to the Jewish people. Then you have this very beautiful and important statement that relates the created realities of the natural world to the effectiveness of God's creative word, his creative will. Uh, and this is actually at the foundation of the Catholic doctrine of inspiration, of the inspiration of scripture. People usually go to Isaiah chapter 55 of that. God says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, as creation is orderly, the way I made it, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Okay, so just as creation functions in an orderly fashion, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I send it. So again, God's creative activity, his word, is not just a foundational event, it is an ongoing event, and here is sort of the climax of that, says this author. And so you have the conclusion. The conclusion is an evocation of the, uh, the, the abundance of the natural world, the abundance of creation, maybe even reference to the kind of Garden of Eden language again. And here is the command, the exhortation that the, uh, that the prophet gives to the exiles in Babylon. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So all creation is shouting for joy, as we like to say, at the return of Israel, the pinnacle of creation, to its proper place. Instead of the thorn shall come the, the cypress, instead of the briar shall come the myrtle, and it shall be to Adonai for a memorial for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So again, there's this notion of etern eternalness, of permanentness to this new thing that God has created, the return of Israel to its, uh, to its land, the rebuilding of the temple. And out of that comes a much broader notion of Israel's role in the world, 
Uh, it is to be a light to the nations now. It is to be this sign that will draw all the nations to seek instruction, to seek Torah, literally, on Mount Zion with this new temple. So creation has been re reordered now. Now there's another um, development within the book of Isaiah, uh, which we call Third Isaiah. That's the last ten chapters. And in the second to the last chapter of that part of Isaiah, which is written at a time when the temple is already standing and functioning, uh, God ups the ante of the language a bit. He says, I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. And so now we really are talking cosmic language. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I'm creating. And what is God creating? I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy. I'm about to create its people as a delight. So again, well, Jerusalem's already standing. The people are already created. No, God is continuing to create them. It's an ongoing process. And then you have this sort of utopian description of what life will be like in this new heaven and new earth as God transforms Israel uh, to the fullness of its vocation, where you have... Um, you know, people always having enough food, no one oppressing one another, there's justice, people live to a ripe old age. Notice they're still mortal in this vision. And then you have this concluding statement, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Uh, so nature itself, the antagonistic dimensions of the natural world, cease. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says Adonai. So this is the vision of the book of Isaiah in all of its stages. It leads to this grand vision of a restored creation. And there's even yet another bit of Isaiah, which I noted in the, the outline. I didn't bring the, uh, the quote, so I'll just have to summarize it. But it's, it's another uh, unit within the book of Isaiah, 24 to 27, I think, which people call uh, the Isaiah Apocalypse because it actually seems to Imagine a radically transformed world in which there is no death anymore. So that, that too may be sort of evoking some of the early creation stories about why people are mortal. But the interesting thing is that it says, the Lord will swallow up death forever as part of this grand climax to history. He'll swallow up death forever. Now that's a mythological expression. In Canaanite mythology, which is where the Bible gets all of its best ideas from, um, the god Mot, which is the god death, swallows up or, or attempts to destroy the god of life. I think it's Baal, in this case, the god of agriculture. Every year, death swallows up the god of agriculture. Now, what do you think that is representing? Winter, the changing of the seasons. So it's a cyclical death and rebirth. Um, see how this has, this, this statement Isaiah changes that. Now it's not death that is swallowing up Adonai, it's Adonai that is swallowing up death forever. Not in a cyclical term, but eternally. So you have within the book of Isaiah all these different sort of layers of images that have to do with recreation out of this condition of decreation, which is has the reference as the destruction of the house of David and of the temple and the exile of the people. All of this is now restored. So the return from exile was a big deal, in other words. 
Um, Zechariah, another prophet of the restoration of Israel, he, I think we may have mentioned this last week, he conveys this idea that, um, again, the temple really is at the heart of creation, where he has the, the new high priest of the new temple, whose name is Jesus, or Joshua. Um, he goes in this divine escalator. Well, actually, I'm making that part up. He appears in the divine throne room up in heaven before all of God's courtiers, and uh, God's uh, minions are sort of judging him. They're deciding whether he is worthy to serve, whether this new temple will indeed be effective as the source of atonement between God and Israel or not. And this is one of the rare appearances of Satan in the Old Testament, although here he has not yet been transformed into a divine adversary. He is simply an adversary of the high priest. He is God's prosecuting attorney. He says, this guy shouldn't be allowed to be high priest. Look at his filthy clothes. He's wearing these tattered robes. And of course, remember that the tabernacle, when you sin, you deface it. You, you put a smudge on it. And so the, the dirty clothes of the high priest symbolize that state of deprivation, that state of decreation that has been experienced up until now. But God decides, no, he is going to, uh, you know, the sins are atoned for, uh, we're ready to put him back into action. And so he gets new clothes, new temple, new clothes. And then there's an interesting point. God says to the high priest, if you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here in the heavenly throne room. So notice what that's saying about the new sort of social order. There is no monarchy anymore. Actually, in the book of Ezekiel, there are some hopes that there might be a restored house of David, but they don't materialize. So we're now at the point where priests are no longer just useful, indispensable functionaries. They are now rulers, at least the high priest. So again, under empire, you can't have independent kings. So monarchy sort of fades away as a model for what Israel in order would look like. Uh, and that's why, again, Isaiah, second Isaiah, separates the ruling role of the king from the liturgical role of the people. So now the priest is, in a sense, the ruler. And to show, again, that the temple on earth is really a model of the heavenly temple, if the priest rules his house well, he will have access to the heavenly court. He will be able to intercede with these angels and such to commune with God and to commune with God and his people. So, in other words, the new temple will be effective, is what this is saying. Okay, so history goes on. That's the Persian period, more or less. There's more that could be said, but for our theme, those are the real highlights. Alexander comes along, and actually there is a legend um, probably has no historicity to it, but it, it's interesting that when there is a new ruler on the scene, a new world ruler, the, new, the, the world order is about to shift with Alexander, there's a legend about how Alexander called upon the high priest in Jerusalem to support his invasion of the Persian Empire, and how the high priest, being loyal, of course, to his sovereign, the Persian king, said, no, I won't. And Alexander said, just wait till I'm finished with, with the siege of Tyre. So Alexander marches on Jerusalem with an army. Everyone's terrified, but the high priest says, no, let's go forth to meet him with garlands and festal branches and all such. 
And when Alexander marches up and sees the high priest in his, in his divinely, you know, sort of designed robes, he prostrates himself before him and, uh, and has a nice conversation with him and then grants several benefactions to the Jews. He says, your people throughout my empire will, will have their religious rights protected, their civil liberties will be protected by my law, and, um, I'm, and he offers a sacrifice on his behalf uh, to the God of the Jews. Then later on, Alexander's general sort of asks him, I thought we were going to conquer this place. And he answers them, the priest, when I saw him in those clothes, that was a priest I saw in a vision, even before I invaded. And this priest said, go and conquer. And so I know that the God of this temple is the source of my victory. So see, it's, it's second Isaiah redone. You know, God was behind Cyrus, now God's behind Alexander. At least for those who saw this as a positive event. There were some others who didn't. Uh, in the book of Enoch, for example, which is not in our canon, but it's in the Ethiopian canon of the Old Testament. In the book of Enoch, uh, the coming of Alexander and of his generals is like the sons of God in chapter 6 of Genesis who mated with mortals and devoured the earth in a bloodbath. Uh, so Alexander also has a negative rap in some Jewish circles as well. But this legend, again, it captures this sense of it's a smooth transition of power in which God is still ultimately in control of events. Then we get the history of Jews under Hellenistic or Greek rule. And uh, it's a long and colorful tale, which I could regale us with for several hours, but I won't. I'll just list a couple of highlights again. Um, for the first century, the Jews were under the dominion of the Ptolemaic dynasty, Alexander's successors in Egypt. And these are the ones who were notable for sponsoring the translation of the Torah, the Pentateuch, into Greek. And that's, why, that's when we know that the Torah existed in its current form, because they translated it. So there's, there's a lot of traditions of good relations between the Jews and the Ptolemies. And at least initially, when power shifts, and another regime, this time from Syria, called the Seleucids, uh, takes control in the year 200 BC, things start off on a good note again, in which um, uh, the king, Antiochus III, the ruler now of the Jews of Palestine, he uh, issues several edicts, several decrees, on behalf of Jerusalem, giving tax write-offs for the priests and other leaders, uh, subsidizing the sacrifices of the temple from his own pocket because of he is so pious, and also issuing a decree on the sanctity of Jerusalem. Uh, that, again, acknowledging, as it were, that this is indeed a holy place, an inviolable place, uh, the center of creation. You know, maybe that's putting it a little too hard because, of course, he did this for every temple he went to. But, again, he's showing his deference, like Cyrus did, to the local customs. And so it begins on a good footing, but then things start to go downhill. Around uh, about the year 175 B.C., um, uh, another Seleucid king decides he wants to extract some monies from the Jerusalem temple treasury. He wants to take some of God's money and use it for his own purposes because he's been told that the high priest is embezzling this money that's earmarked for sacrifices. And uh, when he arrives, the high priest says, sorry, or not the king, but when his minister arrives, the high priest says, sorry, you can't come in here. Only high priests can come in here. I can't give you this money. It's God's money. And the the 
so use the governor brushes him aside and marches into the temple uh, and sort of arrogantly demands this money. Well, at this point, the high priest goes into, into high gear. He does exactly what God promised uh, would be for him in the book of Zechariah. He prays that God will defend his temple, will defend the created order of things, and voila, as the, uh, the, the governor is coming to plunder the, the temple treasury, two um, angels who look like Arnold Schwarzenegger leap in front of him and start beating him into a pulp. Um, they're like whipping him and beating him and and uh, and he's you know crying out for his life and um, then uh, the high priest decides to intercede for him and he is successful. So again, the high priest has the power to communicate with heaven and to affect uh, to affect God's will on earth. And the angels, before they leave him, they sort of kick him another again uh, another time and they say, "Look, you should be thankful you're alive. It was only because of the high priest that you're alive at all. Now go and proclaim the, the glory of God uh, to the world." <laughs> and so he does. He goes back to the Seleucid king and he says. Uh, sorry, sir, I wasn't able to get the money and uh, because the God of this place defends it. So the king says, well, who else should I send? As though he didn't register, like the God's not going to let you take his money. And uh, so the, this battered minister, in, with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, no doubt, says, send one of your enemies and he'll be thoroughly punished. Um, so anyway, a colorful incident. Probably didn't happen. Um, actually, we have recently, a couple of years ago, we had a, an inscription from Israel that was published in which it says that, um, that all over Palestine, not just the Jews, were subject to uh, uh, sort of direct government supervision of the sanctuaries because the king is so pious. Uh, so apparently this is more of a wishful thinking. W- would, would that we had not been subject to this uh, extortion? And so this is you know, what it should have been. But uh, the purpose of this story is to set up the next story, the real problem, the real um, catastrophe, which is the next Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, the bad guy that I mentioned earlier, in which he plunders the temple, and no angels show up to beat him up. He plunders the temple with impunity, he abuses, he slaughters people in Jerusalem, he attempts to repress a rebellion, and finally he decides to erase Jewish identity from the world, at least from the, the region of, of Palestine. He, he doesn't, he's not interested in the Jews elsewhere in his empire, only here, because he sees them as defying him. And um, so the, the author asks, the author of Second Maccabees, that's the document I'm talking about right now, he asks, why did God defend his temple then, but didn't defend it now? So this is the same question that the Jews were asking themselves back three centuries earlier when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Why didn't God defend his temple then? And the answer is basically the same. Because we did something wrong and God is allowing, he's withdrawing his protection uh, so that we will know that we've done something wrong and we can attempt to make it right. This is, again, in a different way of putting it, this is nothing different from the book of Leviticus, again, which the principle is when you sin, you deface and defile the tabernacle, and therefore you have to be constantly cleansing it so that God's presence can dwell in your midst. Um, in the same way, this author, who's a Jew writing in the Greek language, he says in very flowery Greek, the reason why this happened 
was because the temple was made for Israel, not Israel for the temple. Therefore, the temple, the building, shared in Israel's own ups and downs. When Israel was in a state of disarray, it is sort of visually represented by the temple being in a state of disarray and vice versa. So if you have, you have a kind of sacramental principle here, right? the temple is the sacrament of the covenant. Right? When the temple is decimated, that means something's wrong with the covenant that needs fixing. Anyway, you have this persecution of the Jews uh, from 167 to 164 BC uh, by Antiochus IV. Uh, we don't really know why he did this. There are theories, but there's no real credible reason given for it, even in the biblical texts that discuss it. Uh, but he does um, say in his justification, at least in one version, this is in the book of First Maccabees, why he did this. He says, The king dispatched documents by the hand of messengers to Jerusalem and Judah that they should go after customs foreign to the land, withhold burnt offerings and sacrifices and libation from their sanctuary, profane the Sabbaths and festivals, pollute the sanctuary and the holy ones, construct altars and sacred precincts and idols, sacrifice swine and other common livestock, and lead their sons uncircumcised, that their lives might be rendered abominable by every unclean thing and profanation, and here's the clincher, so that they might forget the law and alter all the ordinances, and whoever didn't would be put to death, so that Israel might forget who they were, right? the eradication of their identity, which therefore is a theological problem for God because this is God's God's project in the world is to save the world through Israel being his model people or Israel being this priestly nation. If the nation's identity is erased, there is no salvation for the world. Right? Christians forgot that, unfortunately, for most of, most of history. We remembered it in the last century or so, thanks to the Holocaust. But, uh, but it, the, the world cannot be saved without Israel existing as Israel. So anyway, God chooses to, uh, to intervene, and, uh, but of course not until we've had uh, some bloodshed. So the bloodshed takes the form of martyrdom. This is the first martyrdom in history, unless you count Socrates as a martyr for philosophy a couple centuries earlier. Um, so the effect, those who resist the king's design are uh, tortured and killed with impunity. In a long and the author, Second Maccabees, really loves to write pathetic history. He loves to give you the grisly details. So this would be sort of NC-17 rating. But anyway, you have this famous story about a mother and seven sons, all of whom refuse to give in to the king's demands to eradicate who they are. And what is interesting from our theme of creation is the language she and her sons use to testify to the king, to bear witness, which is what the term martyr means, to bear witness to why they refuse to comply with his commands. And so he writes, The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors. Filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set the order of elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, 
will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of the law. Notice that same idea of forgetting. Antiochus wants them to forget who they are, but she says, forget yourselves as an act of asserting who you are, that you are creations of God, both as human beings and as Israelites. And when her her last son, the youngest, the tenderest uh, son comes up, she again exhorts him. She says, my son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in the womb and nursed you for three years, and it reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth, so look at creation, see everything that is in them, and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Here we have the doctrine of creation ex nihilo for the first time. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death, so that in God's mercy I may get you back along with your own brothers. So in other words, the king is physically decreating these martyrs, but God will recreate them through resurrection. Here's where we first get the doctrine of resurrection expressed. And so the young boy, in the most dramatic speech of all, uh, when the king sort of offers him, don't kill yourself, don't throw your life away. Look, I'll give you, I'll give you great uh, honor in my kingdom if you but comply and eat a little pork. And the little boy says, what are you waiting for? I'm not going to obey your command. I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you, who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews, will certainly not escape the hands of God. For we are suffering because of our own sins. Here's this same sense of we've done something wrong. And if our Lord is angry with us for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not escaped the judgment of the almighty, all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering, have drunk of ever-flowing life under God's covenant. There's the reference to the creation of Israel through a covenant. But you have drunk the judgment of God. You will receive just punishment for your arrogance. I, like my brothers, give up body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation, and by trials and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God, and through me and my brothers to bring an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.